This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this very special episode. It's very special not only because it's my first one since the world went crazy, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, but it's also really special because today I have the pleasure of speaking with a dear friend and former colleague, Dr. Latrice Donaldson, and we will talk about her book, Duty Beyond the Battlefield, African-American Soldiers Fight for Racial Uplift, Citizenship, and Manhood, from 1870 to 1920. The book was published by Southern Illinois University Press in 2020. Duty Beyond the Battlefield investigates how African-American soldiers use their military service to challenge white notions of an African-American second-class citizenry and forge new identity as freedom fighters, demanding the rights of full citizenship and manhood. Dr. Latrice Donaldson is an assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Stout, and is also the author of A Voyage Through the African-American Experience. Latrice Donaldson, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you so very much for having me. I greatly appreciate the invite. I love that I get to do this with uh, with my friend and former fellow Tiger, go uh, <laughs> U- University of Memphis, go Tigers. Um, and uh, so thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to invite me, and, uh, having me on your show. I appreciate it. Yes. How, how are you doing? Uh, I'm recording this from my closet here at downtown Memphis. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I am not in a closet. I'm in a I am doing okay, though. I am here uh, in the Arctic tundra of America, where it is actually still snowing and not outside of or it is still it was like 18 degrees this morning. So um, that's where I am in Wisconsin, which I really do love. Really. It's a wonderful place. Wonderful wonderland in April. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a tropical creature, so I, I don't envy you too much. Yes. But before we discuss, yeah, sorry. It's okay, go ahead. Uh, be- <laughs> before we discuss duty beyond the battlefield, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to write this book? Oh, sure. Thank you. Great question. Um, so uh, I am uh, a African-American historian. But what led me to down this path 
um, into African-American military history actually stemmed from a book. Um, it was Kristen Hokinson's uh, um, Fighting for American Manhood. And um, I was intrigued by, it was the book discussed uh, the Spanish-American Filipino conflict. And the more I examined the book, the more I was wondering, um, and also I looked at, um, I was reading Gail Biederman's book, um, Manliness and its uh, and Civilization. And um, I was looking at both of those books and how um, white men constructed their manhood. And it was very clear that they constructed their manhood by defining it against black men. And so uh, the project, uh, I got interested in this when I was a, a master's student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And um, actually, it, it completely shifted my focus away from my original thesis project, which was uh, going to look at um, non-traditional um, slave masters. So I was going to look at indigenous American slave masters and African American slave masters in um, South Carolina and Louisiana. But um, once I read those two books, I kind of went a little bit further and I decided that um, there needed to be a discussion. Uh, there was something missing. And it was a discussion of how Black men constructed their masculine identity, how they constructed their manhood. And they didn't construct their manhood by comparing themselves to white men, the way that white men constructed their manhood by comparing themselves to Black men. And so I wanted to um, explore this further. And uh, the more I looked at the military, um, the more I saw that uh, that played a huge role in how um, African-Americans uh, after the Civil War really um, grew to define their citizenship. And um, that's, you know, where I would let me down that path. Now, I've been a historian, I feel um, like all my life. Um, I uh, consider myself a seeker, you know, a um, and uh, kind of a uh, historical detective, right? Um, and I've been fascinated by um, all types of history since I was a little girl. Um, my family is also from the Caribbean. I know that you're from uh, Brazil, uh, but uh, my family is from the, the Bahamas, and so I spent a lot of time. Um, they're growing up and, uh, you know, if you go to the Caribbean, you know, they have all these forts and old um, cannons and whatnot. So those things I always was drawn to and fascinated by. And um, pretty much I've been fascinated by history since I was, you know, very young. I've, I love uh, books. I loved reading and I loved um, getting lost in, in history. So, um, you know, I, 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 even though I tried to be a lawyer, I, I thought I'd be a doctor. It always ended up me coming back to uh, being um, fascinated by history. Yeah, when the history bug uh, bites you, it's it's hard, right? We try to we try to go away, but it would keep coming back. <laughs> I know, like, well, with, it, like get go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> No, no, go, go ahead. No, no, Sorry. what I was going to say was, uh, the, the, so I'll tell you the, the real moment that just got me that I realized that I was, uh, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. I was going through census records in, on microphone and, um, I was being the research assistant 
for uh, a book uh, by Cynthia Fleming uh, in the shadow of Selma. And I was going through census record for Wilcox County, Alabama. And I loved it. I loved it. I, it was a, during a summer and I was a Ronald McNair scholar, which is to help African-Americans uh, to get doctorates um, in different fields. And so I really, that's when I knew that I wanted to get my PhD. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's the summer I spent researching census data. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> well, you, in your introduction, <laughs> you tell us that... <laughs> Okay, uh, that's what happens when you get old friends who haven't seen each other in a minute uh, to do an interview. Um, right. <laughs> I hope this is as fun to listen as it is to record. <laughs> but let's get back to your book. Okay, um, absolutely. You let's say, go. <laughs> okay, in the introduction, you tell us that the African-American soldier is of the second half of the 19th century is one of the most misinterpreted figures in U.S. military history. Why do yes. you think that? Well, for a couple of things. One, um, the common uh, thing that I, theme that I've always found in when people talk about black soldiers, like the little two or three paragraphs you get in U.S. history textbooks, or the maybe chapter you get in African American history textbook, is that you know um, they fought in the Civil War, they were Buffalo soldiers, the they fought bravely in the Indian Wars. And then they fought in World War One, and then they did double V, and that's pretty much it, right? They, you don't ever really get this truly deeply analyzed or even simple sentence of how they constructed or why they did this, right? The one common thing that they said that they do is because, well, they don't have a lot of job opportunities, and it's really, you know, it was just best, you know, for them to go and. Um, serve. And I think that is just too simplistic. And also when you think about how black soldiers are constructed being that, um, we African-Americans have made up military service since they were allowed to serve, uh, consistently, uh, our numbers have been at 20 to 25% in the military. And, uh, and that's from the 19th century to the present. At one point during the 70s, and early 80s, it was up as high as 80, I mean, 40%. And the reason why I say that they're misunderstood is that people don't understand the motives behind their service. And oftentimes just leveling it off to economic um, necessity is uh, gravely um, sh being short-sighted about the fact that there was a lot more to military service beyond just, well, this is one of the few jobs they can actually do and they have a certain level of freedom. I'm just kind of like, no, serving the military is not easy, especially in the 19th century. You're living in the middle of nowhere, um, isolated. It is a hard, hard life. And the fact is, is that consistently what I've seen in the documents is that when they served, they weren't serving for themselves. Yes, there was a, you know, yes, there's a certain level of security. Yes, there's a certain level of selfishness in that, you know, they want to take care of them, themselves and their family. However, always tied into, in the back of their minds, always tied into their service, their military service, 
was the African-American community, was what their service was going to mean to the African-American community, how this service was going to be constructed beyond their um, military service, but what they're going to do when they leave. In the speeches I've read, in the articles I've read, in the letters I've read, in the white officers who talk about black soldiers, they're, um, you know, the enlisted men, they talk about how, you know, these men, whether they can read or write, are very clear that their military service isn't their own. It's for the entire African-American community. And once you change that in the textbooks, then you'll have a different construction of how Blacks and immigrants and others use military service. Because African-Americans used it for a very different reason. A lot of whites Mm -hmm. who ended up in the military, a lot of immigrants who ended up in the military, you know, it was people fleeing. They were fugitives. They had to serve or go to jail. There were people who, um, like I said, there are immigrants who were just like, well, I got to do something. But the whole idea of the whole, the whole, the whole Polish race is is going to, my service is tied into uh, uplifting the Polish community. That's not something that is ever discussed. In the African-American community, military service is directly tied into, we have to do our best because it's for all other Black people. Everything we do has to be better. And if you change that, that adds to why I feel that, you know, Black military service is mis- misconstrued and, and misunderstood. Yes, and and that was uh, to me a wonderful contribution that your your book did here, especially now that I you know I'm I'm teaching that survey U.S. survey course, and I've been mm-hmm. thinking about your book while I, I'm you know when we talk about African American soldiers. So one thing I wanted you to talk about is because you know folks who study African American history will likely be familiar with the long versus short civil rights debate. Mm-hmm. And you're clearly here siding with the long uh, civil rights camp. Yes. <laughs> I want you to tell us why. But okay. first, uh, first, could you um, explain this debate to anyone who might not be fam- might be unfamiliar with it? Um, sure. So uh, the long civil rights movement uh, versus the short civil rights movement, it's really about chronology, being that um, you have the 20th century civil rights uh, movement, which uh, the dates, I think, have been pushed back to the 40s going into the 60s, uh, beginning with, you know, world the end of World War II, um, i.e. the double V campaign, and then going into the end of the 1960s. Uh, or if you want to even go shorter with the short Civil Rights Movement, the 1950s and 60s, uh, going into maybe the early 70s. Um, And that is dealing with the actual, you know, when the the media is actively, you see it on the television. And so that's the chronology that is often um, seen in U.S. survey survey, um, textbooks and scholars of the 1960s and 1950s, especially those who want to focus on the Black Power Movement, for example. Um, And one of the reasons why I am in the long civil rights um, camp is that uh, you can see from the end of the Civil War, when African-Americans are going to get, when you get the Reconstruction Amendments pushed through, um, these are the civil rights amendments, right? 
Um, the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment granting um, Black citizenship, and the 15th Amendment granting them the right to vote. So these are the um, the Reconstruction Amendments, but they're also the Civil Rights Amendments because when the Civil Rights Acts are passed and the Voting Rights Act passed in the 1960s, well, what they're really doing is just really making it very simplified and clear that you can't circumvent what's already in the Constitution. So um, one of the reasons why I am in, in the long civil rights camp is that for me, what ends up happening, especially in the 1960s and 70s, is a culmination of decades of activism because it never stopped, right? Um, Blacks never stopped fighting for their rights. The moment that... <clears throat> You have uh, the um, the pushback in the South, the lynchings, the birth of the Klan, uh, and the terrorist the terrorism, um, and uh, against the black community, the uh, the fact that blacks are going to continuously uh, fight to ensure bl- uh, black military service, black officers. Um, all of this is directly tied into the civil rights movement. Black military service is directly tied into the long civil rights movement. One of the things that's always a, a watershed moment in the, if you focus or center your, your chronology in the 20th century would be the double V campaign, which is during World War II, which was victory at home and victory abroad. Well, you can't have the double V campaign if you didn't have the no officers, no fight campaign from the Spanish-American Civil War, uh, Spanish-American-Cuban-Filipino conflict, or the campaign to get the Black officer training school during World War I. All of those things have laid, laid the foundations and pretty much led up to the progression of Blacks getting um, the double V campaign, which eventually is going to push um, the U.S. military to desegregate. And it all has to do with the fact that that's a key component to me into the long civil rights movement. But, um, you know, that's not discussed because people have a problem with military service now in the 21st century. And that's unfortunate because I think um, it does a disservice to the activism that the, the early activism of the NAACP, the early activism of people such as Ida B. Wells and the um, activism of uh, Du Bois, and even <clears throat> figures such as Emmett Scott, um, uh, Margaret, Margaret Murray Washington, um, all of these figures, you know, had some voice, even the anti-military uh, campaigns of people such as Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, all of this um, should be included when you talk about uh, the long civil rights movement. Um, so this is why uh, I feel that that should be where the chronology should fall. But, you know, um, I know that you can't do that sometimes in survey courses uh, because, you know, people don't have the time to do that. But <clears throat> it's something that uh, I try to incorporate. But, you know, you, you have to, to work within certain time constraints. So I, I understand that. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, I'm I'm curious now about then your your the time frame of how did mm-hmm. you decide to 
to, uh, you know, instead of, for instance, looking at a particular war, why did you decide on, on looking at this, this period? Okay, great. Thank you for asking. So one of the reasons, I think you're the first person to ask me that. So thank you for asking me that. One of the reasons why I picked from 1870 to 1920 was that the, this is directly after the Civil War, and it's this is the chronology for the restart and the final stage of the longest war um, the United States ever fought, which was actually not Vietnam War, but the war against the indigenous Americans. Um, and that lasted, you know, a couple hundred years, you know, well, yeah, yeah, so... Um, the 1870s dated as the beginning of the Indian War campaign, uh, and that is the last stages of it because it ends in 1890. And so that's why I begin it there. I wanted to go with the regular army and not the Civil War because that's a whole other um, genre. Like this is a whole other thing in regards to the 250,000 um, African American men who served in the Civil War versus in 1870 the 25,000, um, well, not 25,000 black men, but uh, the military size is different. The structure of the military is different and their goal is different. And so um, who these soldiers are uh, in 1870 is going to be very different than who the soldiers are going to be in 1920. And that's what I wanted to show. And I picked um, that chronology because it's so different in just that short period of time that it just worked perfectly to demonstrate how much the Black soldier evolved over time. Um, also, the World War II is a much longer period, is a much longer war that has um, a lot, a lot more um, soldiers. Uh, in regards to African Americans who served, and uh, World War One um, is such like I had to decide what I was going to cut out in regards to what, what I was going to talk about with World War One, because even there you have um, three hundred and um, over three hundred thousand blacks who serve, and uh, that's a lot. So, but the war was really short. So, you know, it's all about the the longevity of the conflicts that I'm I'm looking at, and and how it's portrayed in the in the press, and what the soldiers say about it, as well as the military policy, um, and their um, fighting capabilities. I, I try to stay away from individual battles per se, uh, because uh, you know there are plenty of military historians who will happily talk about the outflanking of this maneuver up that hill. Um, yeah, that's not me. <laughs> I will, however, talk about how Black soldiers um, defended themselves when confronted by white racist mobs when they are stationed in um, Texas or in um, Arizona and how they would be willing to you know, fight and defend themselves in the Black community against that. That is more interesting than whether or not they were able to outflank Geronimo over there in 1881. 
Yeah, I really appreciated that. Uh, I already <laughs> talked to you about that. Uh, but I think I need to come clean to our audience as well. Military history is not my thing. Uh, so I was really excited when you, your book came out, especially because it has masculinity in the title. And that's something yes. I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. But I was afraid, right? I was like, oh my God, will I like this? It's a military history book. But you hooked me with uh, very evocative uh, narratives that, that opened the chapters, right? As you, as you just was just uh, explaining, you have these stories about individuals. And um, so I was wondering, what, uh, what types of sources allowed you to tell these captivating stories about these people? Well, um, the soldiers, so the cool thing about studying military uh, history is that the military is a bureaucracy that keeps tons of records. So one of the best places to always start is the fact is with the National Archives, of course, and the military, you know, the U.S. Army itself, because they um, have been keeping track of their records from the very beginning. Um, however, the other great place for me in which um, that really helped me to see uh, into the mind of Black soldiers was the Black press and the fact that they followed these men, right? And how they followed them and how they reported on them. And it goes into why I decided to include manhood, a fight for racial uplift and manhood in the title, because Black manhood is tied into Black military service. And their gender identity, right, is being attacked constantly within the white press, within entertainment, with menstrual shows, um, and how, you know, they're portrayed as as beasts and, and sexual predators and um, childlike animals, you know, who can't take care of themselves. And the the uniform, right? You read in the letters that um, they write to the press because one of the things that's important to remember and one of the reasons why we have so many, so much correspondence in certain um, areas in regards to the Black military is that Black soldiers or Black units were not allowed to have um, military correspondence attached to them um, compared to, say, uh, old uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the uh, Rough Riders who had a New York Times person attached to them, right? Uh, black soldiers were not allowed to have any of that. In fact, you don't really get the first Black war correspondence World War One. So the people who are actually reporting on the soldiers writing to the black press are the black soldiers and officers themselves. And they're very vocal and open, which is something you don't see anymore today in regards to the press, right? You don't see a lot of discussion from the rank and file private, black privates um, in uh, the, uh, the press because no one, you know, they don't talk. However, in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, the rank and file private and corporal, some of them who used to work for newspapers like the Weekly Planet or the Cleveland Gazette, would regularly write back to their um, newspapers and report about their experiences. Or the black chaplains, like um, 
Theophilus Gould Stewart or T.G. Stewart, um, Alan Allensworth, um, George Prilo. George Prilo would write a lot of letters to the Cleveland Gazette, and he, um, as uh, describing his experience and the racism that he experienced um, when he rode the train in his chaplain officer's uniform, and um, and so their their voices is what's going to you know help. Uh, shed some light. Um, and also um, court martial records, of course, um, as well as the, uh, especially when it came to World War One, um, the Military Intelligence um, Bureau, uh, as everyone knows, or a lot of people should know, uh, the, the uh, Bureau of Intelligence or the what would later become the FBI, uh, the military intelligence um, and the Office of Naval Intelligence were surveilling the African-American community very closely and monitoring um, their morale uh, very closely. Everything, any and everything that Black said or did that remotely sounded like they were against the war was being monitored. And so those records were incredibly uh, helpful as well as some of the, um, the books. Uh, du Bois uh, wrote an unpublished manuscript, and he had over 10 years of research that is at Fisk University, that it was incredibly helpful in um, helping me to talk about uh, uh, African-American service, military service in the early 20th century and in World War I and a little bit afterwards, because um, his book, which was unpublished, which was, which was called The Black Man in the Wounded World, um, has over 50 or 60 boxes of research where he put a, a call out in the crisis uh, journal, which he, I mean, a magazine uh, that he wrote for, he was the editor for, and asked for Black soldiers to contribute. And they did. They sent him letters and they sent him pictures and they sent him files and they talked to him and they leaked information. And, um, you know, all of that helped uh, in regards to the sources. So the great thing about um, the military is that soldiers um, are, one, they have to be taught how to read and write. And eventually when they do that, they will keep records, right? At the Carlisle Barracks in um, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is where the um, U.S. Army Center is, there were at least 10 unpublished manuscripts, right, of people who thought they were going to write a book about their service during any particular, well, several different wars, and they never got published. So they just donated it to the army. And so the army kept it. And so there's all of those um, records that are incredibly, were incredibly uh, helpful uh, in helping to um, reconstruct uh, how these people viewed in really um, constructing their male and masculine identity, right? Um, because one of the things that I discovered when looking at, say, for, for example, the papers of uh, Colonel or now Brigadier General um, Charles Young was that he wrote about how, while at Wilberforce, serving as the military science instructor, that he wanted to personally help elevate the self-esteem of young black men because of the barrage, the constant, that's what he said, 
he wanted to uplift the self-esteem of young black men because of the constant barrage of racism and the language used to denigrate them and putting on a uniform and all of the uh, the training that comes with um, being a soldier and being a warrior helped to helps them to combat um, the racism of uh, Jim Crow America. So um, that really helped um, all of those letters and little newspapers and court martial records and unpublished uh, writers because they were they thought they were poets, but they were not. <laughs> which is why they didn't publish but it, it was all incredibly helpful um so it's a gold mine yeah that, that, the material just really sounds fascinating and one thing that i also was really intrigued is this idea of mobility right this this mm-hmm. is a book that takes us to different places and as you said you talk you talk here about the symbolic value of being mobile Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would like you to tell us a little bit about that, but also that through this mobility and relocation, the black soldiers are affecting the demographics of the places they're going to, right? Especially through interracial marriages. Right, um, right, right. Mm-hmm. Get, tell us about that, but also I'm going to start a petition for you to write a sequel <laughs> on the women who married these men, because I was fascinated, uh, you know, by those stories. Okay, so you know what I, you know what I, I would actually love to do that, and I'm looking into writing at least an article, because um, I was gonna, pre- I was actually supposed to present a paper uh, at the Western um, Association uh, Women's Historian um, Conference in April uh, at the end of this month in um, Costa Mesa, California. You know that conference was canceled, so I will probably just turn that into or just work on and, and write an article about it. Uh, so yes, I'll definitely do that. But um, the mobility, yes. So for example, where I live here in Western Wisconsin, about an hour away is Fort Snelling um, in uh, Minnesota, and in fact, um, the 24th Infantry was stationed there for several decades. Um, and that meant that you had a regular rotation of African-American men and eventually them building their families uh, who, and this is, Fort Snelling is right outside of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And um, this would help to increase the Black population in these areas to the point where, in fact, one of the people I talk about, I'm actually working an article about him right now, his name is Walter Loving, um, he, uh, when he was a kid, his sister moved and worked for a judge, a state Supreme Court judge in Minneapolis. And he went to the same school as the judge, uh, the son, the judge's son. And so he went to an integrated school. And so you have a situation where, you know, in Minneapolis and St. Paul in the, an area like Minnesota, where, um, segregation is not as prevalent because, you know, black population is so small you'll have situations where slowly where the black soldiers go, the black community will follow as well. And he was greatly influenced by the presence of the 24th infantry. He would, he loved to go watch them, um, the band play. And sure enough, when he got older, he went and joined the military. He didn't have to, he could have, um, he was a brilliant musician and he had the opportunity to continue to be a musician, but instead he went and joined up uh, with the military. Um, another situation would be a city like Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, Utah, literally, the newspaper talks about how 
they know that once these soldiers are going to be stationed at Fort Douglas, that means that the caravan of Black people that's going to come is going to be there. And initially, the the Salt Lake City uh, newspapers were like, oh, God, we don't want these Black people. But then they changed their apology. They actually, they wanted a few places that issued an apology to the Black soldiers. Um, And you have Black soldiers who are like, you know what? I want to stay. When I leave um, the military, when my service is up, instead of going back to Mississippi or Kentucky where they joined up, they end up staying in in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. They end up staying in um, Arizona. They end up staying in California, right? In San Francisco, because uh, they they're stationed. Um, the first set of uh, park rangers in the early 20th century are going to be um, members of the 9th and 10th Cavalry. And they're going to be stationed in uh, just outside of the, um, oh God, what are those big tall trees? that are in California. You know what I'm talking about? Those really tall, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of them, but uh, they're going to serve as park rangers um, in, uh, in just outside of San Francisco. And then they're going to grow that community. And so even in, and especially in a place like the Philippines in after the Cuban-Filipino conflict, uh, about... Um, 14% stay in the Philippines and marry and have a whole community. And so you have this Afro-Filipino uh, population in um, in Manila and the Philippines that are directly related to the direct descendants from the uh, Black soldiers or the Buffalo soldiers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that was something that I, uh, again, because it's more in, in my field, so I was really interested <laughs> in is these men who stay in the Philippines and build right. relationships, get mm-hmm. married, uh, start families. You mentioned that this war in the Philippines was an opportunity for them to change their status as men. Yes. Uh, how was that? Well, one of the ways that they did that was that um, you have this complaint. Right. Um, so some of the white off soldiers wrote to um, and complained to their um, commanders about how the Filipino women preferred the black men to them. And they were pref- they preferred to have relations with them and preferred to you know be with them rather than be with white men. And one of the reasons why was how they treated those women. And the Filipino women knew that. Um, these black men were going to treat them with a level of respect that the white men were not going to. And the other reason that they're able to actually just be men is that um, they can um, actually protect uh, their women. They can actually provide and and um, provide a safe environment for their women compared to, say, living in um, the South where, you know, a lynch mob could come in and, you know, rape your wife and make you watch and then, you know, kill you or something. 
you know, you don't have those kinds of scenarios because it's the black military is there. And yes, there are going to be some incidents between black soldiers and white soldiers. However, what you're not going to get is um, a white lynch mob rolling up into a black man and his Filipino's wife um, home trying to come hang him or whatever or rape her in the same way that they would have done in the South. And they they talk about it, right? They are going to have children with these women. And instead of doing what the white, this is one of the reasons why the Filipino women would prefer black men was that they took their commitment to being the father of these kids very seriously. And so they actually provided for, some of them would send for their children um, and their wives, uh, especially if they decided to stay in California um, or the ones who decided just to stay in the Philippines and uh, have a marriage. And they were able to earn a, relatively well-off living in the Philippines. And all of that adds to how they're able to be men, right? They can protect their women. They can provide financially. There's a certain level of status that comes with them from being uh, members, foreign members of the military and uh, having a certain level of um, protection in regards to the Filipino government, um, because the the Filipino government that's going to be established is going to be very pro-American. And so, uh, yeah, the U.S. wanted Blacks to move to the Philippines, actually. And so, you know, they were encouraged to come over as teachers. Carter G. Woodson goes over and teaches, um, you know, the father of African-American, of Black History Month, spends some time in Manila um, teaching, uh, English and working and in, in teaching in the schools there. Um, the guy I was talking about, Walter Loving, he uh, cre- helps to create the um, Filipino Constabulary Band, which is becomes this world famous band. Um, and uh, they tour the world there. It's going to be the first time an African-American is ever going to lead a marching band during a White House inauguration, because he does this during um, William Howard Taft's uh, presidential inauguration. And so um, the Black community has this really um, interesting relationship with the Filipino population. And the Filipino military um, has a, uh, well, the Filipino population in some aspects still maintains a great respect for um, people like Walter Loving, because he wrote um, a song about the Philippines. He died in the Philippines, actually, um, during World War II. Um, and the Philippine um, Military Academy is model- modeled after West Point. And you have um, this relationship <clears throat> that is very complicated with the Afro-Filipino population that's still there um, and how they're treated uh, and, you know, what that means in regards to heart, you know, being Afro-Filipino and how they're treated by the uh, other Filipino population. So it's a very interesting dynamic in that they're able to um, protect their women. And that's a big deal to them is that they're able to protect their women. Something that in some instances in the South, they're just not able to do because when mm-hmm. their women go out to work in the homes of these white men, the fact is there's a very po- real possibility of them getting um, attacked uh, in those homes. And uh, the 
um, the police force in Manila, the Philippine Constabulary Force, is littered with former Black soldiers and officers. And that's the police force. That's who's going to investigate if something happens. So yeah, they're going to be able to provide a certain level of protection for their wives and their family that they're not able to do um, in uh, the United States. I find that that relation, uh, you know, between the black soldiers and and the people in the Philippines really interesting, especially if we consider that they went in there to fight, mm -hmm. right? To fight against them. So mm -hmm. that brings uh, uh, to me a really important theme here in your book is this um, lack of, I think at some point you mentioned this lack of interracial camaraderie, right? These men, uh, these African-American soldiers are very often called upon to fight against other people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, you have you know, Native Americans in the West, Mexicans, Filipinos, and Haitians. And tell us a bit about that. And what do you think prevented black soldiers from identifying with other racialized people who are also being oppressed by the U.S. government? Well, the thing is, though, they did identify with them. They, um, especially in, with the Filipinos and the indigenous Americans, right? They did not enjoy doing those things, right? They did not enjoy, um, especially if they were going to, uh, for example, in regards to um, in indigenous Americans, they talk about the fact that um, some of them really did not enjoy uh, what they would have to do in regards to rounding up and putting people on reservations, right? However, they also had to protect these reservations too. And so they, you have these two situations where they're rounding people up and putting them on the reservations. And then also they're going to have to protect these reservations from white settlers coming in. In the Philippines, you have the situation in which they are very much, because the Black press was so opposed to Blacks fighting in the Philippines, um, you have this very split down the middle um, kind of thing in which they oppose the American um, policy in the Philippines, but they supported the troops. And what that meant was that they say this and they write back to the Black press and say, look, we get it. We, we will carry this heavy crown with a load of disgust. Um, however, we're going to still do our duty because that's our responsibility. If we didn't do this, right, um, then we would never be able to serve in the mill. They'd find a way to try to kick us out because they tried. They consistently said that blacks, you can't send black soldiers to do this, this, and this. You can't trust them to do this, this, and this. Um, And they knew that if they didn't do this, then African-Americans would never serve in the military. They would find a way to keep them out. And a part of your civic duty as an American citizen is being able to serve. And so that is something that, you know, they always would weigh the pros and the cons, right? The fact that, you know, for example, something I always kind of find annoying, right? People love to talk about David Fagan how he abandoned, he's this black soldier who abandoned um, his service and uh, deflected to the Filipino side. However, of the thousands of black soldiers who served in the Philippines, only five were ever charged with desertion and only one ever actually joined and defected to the Philippines. And that was David Fagan. 
And that is something that is very important to understand. African-Americans always had the lowest desertion rate. And it wasn't because they were just so gung-ho about American policy. They always did it out of the larger picture, right? And so um, the situation also comes from, you have to take into account that these men are being led by a very westernized um, military strategy being that this is a very Eurocentric, oh, we're going to go in and um, they are uh, going to buy into this idea about where we're Americans and we're going to help make you better. They Mm -hmm. still have that mentality that still is there, right? Because Americans love to go around the world telling them how we're the greatest country in the world or whatever. And um, and, and you're Brazilian, right? And so you're kind of like, you're Brazilian, you're kind of like, well, I think Brazil is the greatest country in the world. So, you know. I definitely disagree. not now. No, well, no, not now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely don't think America is the greatest country in the world right now. So, yeah, no. I mean, it's it's. But you have this that you know they're very proud to wear. There's there's a um, a thing that happens to these men when they put on that uniform, and it's something that is very hard to comprehend, especially when you're dealing with our scholars of the 21st century who write things and refer to um, American imperialist policy. Yes, it's very much related to stellar colonialism. Absolutely. American imperialism in the Philippines. Absolutely. However, these guys didn't didn't see it all tied into as being black and white. Oh, this is a bad, unjust war. I'm not going to do my job. No, they are going to say this is an unjust war. However, I still did my job and I'm going to treat the Filipino civilian population with a bit more respect than the white soldiers. And they do that. And this is why they were so afraid of blacks defecting to the side of the Filipino rebels because of the fact that they were so, they treated the civilian population very differently than the white soldiers did. They didn't do the atrocities and the type of um, racialized, you know, they called them uh, the N-word, all this stuff. They didn't treat them that way. And the Filipinos knew that. And so they were always suspicious of the fact that they were so friendly with the Filipino population or they were so friendly in regards to um the in regards to the in going to, to Mexico, right? Because the thing that people don't like to talk about is the Afro-Mexican population that lived there, right? All those runaway slaves who didn't run north, who ran south. And the fact that they have that population there. Um, and then they choose to settle in places like El Paso. El Paso's racial dynamic uh, at the turn of the century is very different than the racial dynamic of Houston because of the amount of black soldiers who were stationed there. And, uh, you know, you have these things that people have to to um, consider in regards to looking at a much larger picture. Also, you know, they they are going to they're able to be a little bit more political in their protest to uh, America's policy in the Philippines, Um, being that, you know, uh, so they talk about in the book that um, what happened in Hawaii. Right. So they, black soldiers would routinely go to Hawaii and pay homage and respect to Queen Lala Kalani. Um, hold on, I think I may have butchered that 
I'm sorry, Hawaiians, I apologize. Uh, but um, they go in and pay respect to her in Hawaii um, and uh, pay homage to her because they, you know, know that her land was stolen from by the U.S. government or the by the um, by the Dole family and eventually annexed by the U.S. And so, um, you know, they try to do things um, to pay homage to the uh, indigenous populations and where they're going to the Filipinos, uh, whether it's the Hawaiians, um, even in Mexico, um, you know, they always were afraid, right? That was always the big fear that the blacks and the Mexicans were going to join up together um, along the Mexican border um, and somehow go to war with white people along the Mexican border. So, you know, there is still a type of camaraderie that exists. Uh, but, you know, the fact is they were never going to betray because white, the white, um, the racist white uh, hierarchy within the military was just waiting for blacks to do that. They were waiting for them to um, do something, the smallest little thing, so they could use it against them and, and banish all blacks from the military. And that is something that, you know, you have to really remember, being that if one person messed up, everyone would be punished. And they knew that. Mm-hmm. So we, we talked a little bit about how these men went to places, right? This idea, mm-hmm. we, we talked about mobility, but uh, you also talk about what happens when they come back, right? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, uh, when in the in the war in the Philippines, they return, and as you say, they didn't necessarily have a hero's welcome. So I would like for you to tell us a little bit about this return and how did African-American soldiers challenge the Jim Crow system? And also something that you also mentioned was the role of the returning African-American vet in the creation or the conception of that the, the, the new Negro of the 1920s. Okay. All right. So um, one of the things that uh, is going to especially crop up in the um, after World War One is, you know, you have Red Summer and this idea that blacks need to be put in their place because they went and they were, you know, they're exposed, right? So when blacks go to France and the French treat them with a type of respect that they never experienced before in regards to the United States, right? Um, they are very disgusted when they return and the white population is like, well, we have to make sure that they don't get too uppity. And so they try, they go on this whole campaign to put blacks back in their place. Um, and then you have the situations where um, you have black soldiers who return who are like, well, we're not going to just take this, right? We're going to actually fight back. And you have situations in riots, in the racial riots of Chicago and Washington, D.C., where it's, you know, whites are trying to come into the black community to destroy it. And rather than them just turning their backs, I mean, well, rather than, you know, running and hiding, it turns, they run into communities where it's actually black soldiers are going to be like, no, we're not going to just take this. And they're going to use their military training to defend the community. And it's something that you end up seeing 
get repeated, right, in the 1960s when Blacks, when particular Black leaders want to push Black self-defense. I mean, um, the, uh, oh God, uh, not um, not Huey Newton, but the other one, Bobby Seale was a veteran and he helps to train the other Black Panthers in some of his paramilitary, you know, they create paramilitary organizations, right? The African Blood Brotherhood um, is going to be filled with, and the same thing with the United uh, Negro Improvement Association or the UNIA with Marcus Garvey, he actively recruits Black veterans into his elite little paramilitary guard, right? And the African Blood Brotherhood is a secret paramilitary organization that um, it's one of the things I, I it one of my favorite shows. Have you did you watch The Watchmen? Um, that was on HBO. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So you if you you did you watch that very first episode with the Tulsa um, mm-hmm. race riot, right? And what irked me to no end about that. I love the whole show. The show it was amazing. But but what irked me was that you had this man who put on his uniform, right? Who didn't fight. He gave, he handed his gun to his uh, wife uh, and just, and I was just like, that's not what happened. During the Tulsa race uh, war, actually, what it was called for like 30 years, it was called the Tulsa race war, was that there were black veterans who were members of the African Blood Brotherhood who defended the uh, young black man who was being accused of uh, whistling at a white woman in an elevator or something. And they stationed up, they created a perimeter around him. And it turned into um, an actual all and all out and out battle. That's how the African Blood Brotherhood became famous, right? In regards to the black community was that they created a defensive perimeter and successfully defended this guy overnight. And uh, this is why the Tulsa riot was so, you know, violent was that it was an actual fight between blacks and whites. Blacks didn't just sit there and take it. They fought back. They, it turned into a war. And if you go back and look at the um, the newspapers from like the 30s and the 40s, it was called the Tulsa Race War. It, the narrative had was changed. And so one of the things that, you know, I want to really push in regards to changing how people, you know, one of the reasons why black military service was so important was that these people returning back had a certain level of, and this is why it was so threatening to whites, right? Seeing a black man in that uniform was just threatening to them. It, it, uh, it, um, it triggered them to the, to think that these people know that they have, you know, the, having that U.S. Um, star on their on their collar, those things are that visual of that is very was very triggering to whites who were like these people are wearing the same uniform that I am and they are not equal to me and it we have to put them in their place and the people are like well no we're going to fight back with you on this and they do mm-hmm. in in a lot of these in some of these incidents and you know you can really look at the the black veteran organizations like the the League of Veterans that are going to uh, pop up after World War One um, even after the Indian Wars, we have incidents where uh, whites are trying to attack black, um, you know, even black veterans and other black soldiers come to their defense. The fact is that there are more incidents like that than people that people 
we'll talk about, but it doesn't fit a certain kind of narrative. Because one of the things that I, I, I really um, am bothered by oftentimes is how they portray Blacks as the victim in history. Like we're a victim in American history, right? We're kidnapped and taken into slavery. Um, and then Jim Crow was forced on us and, you know, we didn't do much. And then uh, and then in the 50s and the 60s, we get uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, the great Negro leader to come in and, and, and liberate us. And, and, that's, and then that was it. And you're just kind of like, no, that's not what happened. Blacks fought the entire time. They never just acquiesced to any condition, even being put on a ship. There are those who kill themselves. So you don't even have the, those kind of numbers. Like you don't, there was never any point where Blacks were a victim in American history. But that's just something that um, is, you know, that needs to be changed. And that's, you know, one of, one of my goals. <laughs> yes. And your book definitely does that. Uh, one, uh, uh, one of my final questions that I wanted to ask was something that surprised me is that uh, how many times throughout the book, this discourse of upholding fighting for black men's manhood because I, I assumed that was something that you were reading between the lines, but it was something that these men were, were quite explicitly articulating themselves. Right. Was yes. that something that you, you know, did you start to write a book about manhood or, or was that something that was a product of your research? Well, as actually, you found these sources, you decided. No, no, no. I, I wanted to write a book about black manhood. Um, I, um, the more, I, you know, the languages is there. And this is what they're saying. This is in the headlines. This is what mm -hmm. um, Alexander Mitchell with the Richmond Planet um, is saying in uh, constantly, right? Uh, this is what the editors of the Cleveland Gazette, this is what they're saying in the, in the Washington Bee. They, the newspapers are constantly referring to Black soldiers and Black manhood. When they attack Black soldiers, they're attacking our manhood. They are constantly attacking our manhood. And how do they construct their manhood? Well, we construct our manhood how we treat people, right? And so one of the things that I was, you know, when I was kind of goes back to what I was talking about in regards to how they treat indigenous Americans, how they treat the Filipino population, even how they treat the Mexican and the Cuban and the Liberian population, in that, um, you know, they treat them with a level of respect that they, the best way they can. Right. And so um, this is why you have a certain kind of um, admiration, right. From the French population when the black soldiers come and help them. And then they see how the white, uh, white Americans are treating them. And then the white military structure was so afraid of um, the fact that they were afraid that the white French population, civilian population, and the white French military actually would take sides with the black soldiers against the white American soldiers because that's how much they dislike white American soldiers. And um, especially in the fact they were trying to force, they forced them to treat them with the same racist um, structure that the U.S. military had. Because unlike the American military, which didn't get their first black general until 1940, the French had a black general going back to the 18th century. And so, you know, um, they, uh, the fact is, is that you have these situations in which blacks are very proud. So for example, 
even though they um, Charles Young goes into Haiti and recommends that there be a temporary occupation of Haiti, there's also a recommendation for the temporary occupation of the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic wanted the U.S. occupation. The Haitians didn't want it, but there was enough violence between the Dominicans and the Haitians where they were like, look, they need to, someone, you know, needed to go in and do something. So the Marines go in. And unfortunately, um, it's horrible in the fact that uh, they're so racist in their suppression of Haitian culture, of voodoo and whatnot. Um, However, one of the things that is um, appreciated about Haitian culture is Toussaint L'Overture, right? Charles Young writes a play about Toussaint L'Overture. You have Black high schools and um, they have plays and constantly in the Black newspapers, there are always profiles about the Haitian Revolution and Toussaint L'Overture or Antonio Maceo from Cuban, uh, the Cuban Revolution. They are very much aware of people of color uh, in different parts of the world, right? They even have this really interesting relationship with the Japanese, especially after the World War I, uh, the Treaty of Versailles peace talks, right? Du Bois goes to Japan several times. And so, you know, when the Japanese are like, look, you know, you need to come up with some kind of, you know, resolution in regards to um, people of color around the world, and, you know, Woodrow Wilson with his racist self completely dismisses it, right? But um, one of the things that is always there is that Black manhood is tied into directly how they treat other groups, how they treat other people. And um, that military service, when it's when Black military service is attacked, is one of the attacks on Black manhood. And so tying all of that into military service and tying how they treat different groups of people and how they try to relate to different groups of people um, adds to it. Uh, and um, that's important, right? Because they're, Black soldiers are able to travel the world and introduce, I mean, they're going to be the group to introduce jazz to Europe. And that's a big deal. And they're going to um, be the first group of people that some white people, you know, first group of African Americans that they'll ever see. And they deal with the stupid racist questions like everyone else. Um, However, I mean, uh, you know, you should read some of the letters like, oh, do you have a tail? Like, what? (laughs) What are you asking me? Do you have a tail? Yeah, tail somewhere. You know what? Never mind. I was going to do a totally bad joke there, but um, you have, uh, <laughs> but you have uh, all of these really um, interesting, nuanced ways of how they construct their masculine identity, and it's not to the denigration of whites. It's to the upliftment of their community in and doing their very best to be as considerate um, to other groups, like the the civilian Philippine population, which they talk about the fact that the civilian Philippine press talk about how they rather have black troops, which is one of the reasons why they kept black troops stationed there. Um, Mm. And even in regards to how they deal with, uh, with the Mexican punitive expedition going into Mexico, they were actually some of the best trained soldiers in the military. So, um, yeah, no, it, 
all of that is tied into their identity, their masculine identity. And um, it's very important that when they put on that uniform and how they treat different groups, um, they know that they are being a reflection of the entire Black community. And so they have to treat, you know, these people certain ways. Um, so hopefully yeah, uh, um, I answered everything. <laughs> yes, yes. So there's so much more I wanted to, to ask, but we're sort of running out of time. So I don't want us Aww. to go without you telling a little bit of what are you working on next? And okay. if you will, tell us about the Blurdy Report. Oh, awesome. Thank you for asking <laughs> So uh, right now I'm working on uh, two projects in the work. Um, one is uh, I'm a co-author, um, and it's the history of uh, Black chaplains. So, and it will be with my um, co-author, my mentor, my, I call him academic dad. Um, his name is George Wright. He is department chair uh, at York College. And we're going to write a history of Black chaplains from 1861 to 1945. And um, I think that um, it's going to be a game changer in how, you know, we even talk about Black chaplains because it's not something that you talk about. So we're going we're gonna to change the game there, right? Uh, and um, like I said, I was, I'm working on an article on Walter Loving. Uh, I'm also working on a, uh, a book uh, in regards to, it's in the developmental stage right now, but it's going to be about uh, Harriet Tubman. And um, I never thought I'd write a book about Harriet Tubman, but uh, <laughs> I just never thought I would do it. However, uh, we're going to see where, where that one goes. Now, the Blurry Report is my pop culture blog that um, I uh, run with one of my former students. He's the co-editor. His name is Deshaun Gaines. And uh, it's about pretty much everything relating to um Black people in pop culture. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we talk about um, music, we talk about, uh, you know, Black Panther, um, we talk about R. Kelly, we talk about the Boondocks, we talk about who should play Storm, um, because in the next X-Men franchise, I don't know what they're going to do, because now that X-Men was is now a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because, you know, the uh, Disney bought up Fox. I'm not entirely certain that I want the X-Men to be a part of the MCU because I'm not a big fan of the MCU. Uh, so, um, you know, there are you know, people who don't agree with me. I'm, I'm, I, I don't, it's too, I don't like Iron Man. Um, <laughs> Well, folks can read all about that on the Blurdy Report. Let's yes. let 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 folks take the, uh, make their own conclusions because yes, we gotta yes, go. Yes. Okay, yeah. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle uh, is at Ebony Nerd. At, yeah, Ebony Nerd. Um, and you can follow me there, and you know we can take this off the off the uh, podcast. But thank you for having Good me. Day. I appreciate I appreciate you. You're doing such a wonderful job. My friend, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Latrice Donaldson about her book, Duty Beyond the Battlefield, African-American Soldiers Fight for Racial Uplift, Citizenship, and Manhood. 
1870 to 1920. The book was published by Southern Illinois University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and I hope I'll see or hear you next time. Please stay safe, <laughs> everyone out there. <laughs>